Amen. Good to be here, church. That's funny. Yes, I am the man from London. <laughs> it's great being here always, you know. Um, it is like coming back home to family. And uh, Harlem is such a special ministry. And, you know, I say that every time I'm up here, but every time I'm reminded of how special uh, you guys really are. I was so grateful to hear Rodney Duncan's um, communion. Rodney is an OG from Harlem. He was here before I was here, and to see him still uh, preaching and sharing and sharing his heart is just uh, so encouraging. And also, even Sharon. I knew Sharon before I was um, a disciple. So she was at, I think, the Alvin Ailey School and at Dance Theater of Harlem. So I feel like I'm in a place where people have watched me grow up. I'm still trying to grow up, but uh, it's, it's still good to be here. Now, the other thing that uh, was encouraging is we had the reunion a few weeks ago. Man, that was inspiring. People flew in from all different parts of the country just to come to our Harlem church reunion. There were some ministers I never even knew had served in Harlem. I met the first guy who ever started the ministry here. I did not, never met him in my life. And so, you know, no one knows how to party like Harlem does, right? We had the cooking out there. There was the barbecue going. You know, sisters broke out into the electric slide, which is mandatory at a Harlem party. Um, we had Refining Faith sing, which was awesome to hear. Um, Fred Goodman sang Bound to the Rock. And just messed everybody up. I mean, there were grown men crying, including myself. Me and Drew, 20-year police veteran, toughest guy in the church, in the corner, weeping the ugly cry <laughs> as Fred, Fred was singing Bound to the Rock. You know, it was, it, uh, it was just so special. And I think there were tears and there was joy because this meant so much to us over the years. You know, the, the battles we faced, this ministry started in 1988 with a, a young, inexperienced disciple who was put into leadership. And here we are today. Look around. You know, as Harlem, we've been through some challenges. We've been through some highs and lows. And if you look around, Harlem is changing. Y'all got our Whole Foods now. You got little boutiques, high-end restaurants. Harlem is changing. And as it changes, we need new vision for ourselves and we need new vision for Harlem. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a character who had a lot of vision in the Bible, someone called Nehemiah. And the title of my uh, message today is An Indestructible Vision. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us in the church, in relationships, and in your word. We thank you that you've had a vision for our lives personally. You've had a vision for our church. And you have, have a vision for what we can do in the future. Lord, we pray as we look into the scriptures today that our hearts are open. But also, Father, that we can leave here ignited with a new vision in our hearts. A vision that is planted by you, fostered by you, and that will come to fruition through your power, your grace, and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures today. So stay with me. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15. And we're going to kind of go backwards through this story back to the beginning. So at the end we, we know that Jerusalem had had its walls broken down and Nehemiah was a leader who came into Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 we read a very simple sentence. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. It's a short sentence. All it states is that the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt within 52 days. Let's focus on that for a second. First of all, what did that mean? The wall of Jerusalem was 2.5 miles long. The height of the wall was 39 feet. The average thickness of the wall was 8.2 feet. And the wall contained 34 watchtowers and 8 separate gates. The watchtowers and the gates were means of protection. But what was more remarkable than how big the wall was, that it was is that it was rebuilt in 52 days when it stood wrecked for 140 years. 140 years, they couldn't get it together to rebuild this wall. And one man and his vision came in and they got the job done in 52 days. Sometimes in life, the greater the challenge, the greater the vision that's needed. Whatever you're facing in your life, the greater the challenge, the greater vision you will need. And I want to help you with that vision today. The first point of my message is, so what are you going to do? When you look at your challenges, when you look at what's ahead, what are you going to do? Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 25. Because there are many reasons why this should not have worked. In 2 Kings chapter 25, we're going to read from verse 8. Because what had happened was the Jews had, uh, um, had rebelled against God. It was prophesied that because of their rebellion, there was going to come destruction of the Jews. And right here is when we see uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, coming in and starting the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 8. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord. So he burnt down God's temple the royal palace, and all of the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burnt down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who were deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people in the land to work the vineyards and field. This is the great Israel. God had promised to take care of them. And he had given them victory after victory after victory. And right now, because of their sin, Nebuchadnezzar had come in and destroyed their city, broke down their walls, desecrated the holy temple of God, and carried off all of what they did is they carried off all of the educated people, all of the people with skills to Babylon and left the poorest people in the land. Some historians say as many as 700,000 people 
were taken out of Jerusalem. They were demoralized. The city was demolished. And they were a symbol of failure. No leaders, just poor, without a wall. And what that meant is if they had no wall, it was a symbol of how defenseless they were. Anybody could run into the city and destroy them. And so for them, it was a symbol that God had left them. And here they were, the mighty Jews, without any protection. But here's the thing. This was not the first time it had happened. Go to Ezra chapter 4 and verse 12. We're going to read a long passage of scripture here. Ezra chapter 4 verse 12. Now earlier, the Jews had wanted to, before Nehemiah came in and tried to fix the walls of Jerusalem, the Jews had wanted to fix it before. And so this is one of the reasons why they were discouraged. In, verse, uh, in Ezra chapter 4, verse 12, The king should know that the people who came up to us from you, this is uh, the enemies of the Jews writing to the ki- king Darius. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to, Jeru- to, to, to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city, talking about Jerusalem, is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in a trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. To Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in a trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us had been, has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of the trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as a copy of this letter, uh, of, of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of King Darius of Persia. So here a letter, people saw that the Jews were trying to rebuild. And they saw this was a powerful nation. This was a people who had rebelled against uh, against Babylon. And they said, you know what, we can't have these people rebuild, otherwise they will stop paying taxes, we will lose that revenue. And so they went to the Jews and compelled them by force to stop. They were saying bad things. They were trash-talking Jerusalem. But they knew there were a threat. They knew there were trouble. And so as they were compelled to stop, the Jews thought, again, God is no longer with us. 
their hopes were crushed for 140 years. This was just a reminder of their sin, of their disobedience. It was their fault. They took on that national guilt. Their numbers had been diminished, leaders exiled, and only the poor left in the land. How many of us have been through troubling times or times of failure where we thought there was no way out? You know, I remember, and some of you may, when I came out of the ministry, I had started a business. And I went to college and I, I, uh, I started this business and I took on a business partner who was my adjunct professor at the time. And for the first two years, it was, you know, going well. I, was, uh, I helped create the product and I helped sell it in different stores. And, um, you know, I was naive about a lot of things. My wife supported me as we struggled through it. There was no finances. I just had this dream and I just had this vision. And we, started, we even started getting press in the newspapers and, and this thing was building and it was great. And then my business partner, who had more experience than me, thought, you know what? As we've built to a certain place, why do I need Robert anymore? And so he wrote letters to investors. He wrote letters to, uh, to the other people who were involved in the business. He basically discredited me, said I was trying to steal. I was trying to steal information, take the thing for myself. He even tried to get my wife fired from her job. To the point where um, they brought a frivolous lawsuit against us. They didn't win. But... It crippled us. I was discouraged. And I remember there was this one store that we always wanted to get our products into. And I sold our products into that store. It was one of the great moments um, during this two years. And our products, I think even today, are still in those stores. And every time, sometimes I'll go in and I'll look. And it's just a reminder to me, wow, that was a tough time. Now, amen, I'm still here. Amen, God has blessed me even more. But it's always a reminder, man, at that moment, I was so low. I felt like a failure, like I'd let my wife down. And then here's this guy saying, you know, as a Christian, what do we have but our reputations? And the very thing I valued most is what he was attacking. And people were looking at me with suspicion. Some of us have been through these times. Tough times. Maybe it's on your job. Maybe it's in your family. Where you've been lied on, cheated, talked about, mistreated. You've been used, scorned, talked about, sore as a bone. You've been up and you've been down, almost to the ground. But as long as you've got King Jesus, you don't need nobody else, right? Listen. As they looked at that wall in Jerusalem, it was a symbol of failure. The kids were asking their parents, what happened here? Isn't this the great Jerusalem that you talk about? Look at the walls. What I want to tell you is there is a, re is a way to rebuild. If it's your marriage that needs to be rebuilt, there's a way to rebuild. If it's your career that needs to be built, rebuilt, there's a way to rebuild. If it's your education, your family, your physical body, no matter what you are going through, there is a way to rebuild. Listen, Jerusalem had a long history of conflict. They'd been attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, besieged 23 times, and destroyed twice. This 
was the people of God. If we are the people of God, we can't expect anything less. But we've got to get up and we've got to keep going. The song Men Who Dream is about this period in Israel's history. Captives came back into Zion. They're coming back into Jerusalem. From their freedom, they'd been let go. Came a scheme. While the city lay in ruins, they believed they had a dream. We've got to start dreaming. Whatever ruins are in your life, we've got to start dreaming. Now, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, sometimes the obstacles come from outside. But sometimes the obstacles also come from within. I won't go into this scripture, but as we read the scripture, what started to happen was that there were some Jews, because, because it was, living was hard in Babylon, there were some Jews who had no money to feed themselves, had no money to pay taxes or buy food, and also had no money for the basic things that they needed in life. So what did they do? They had this land, they mortgaged their land, and if that land didn't work, um, if mortgaging their land didn't work, they would take out these loans. And when they could not repay the loans, the last step was to sell their children as collateral or put their children up as collateral so the children would be in slavery. And this was Jews doing this to other Jews. So here's Nehemiah trying to build this thing, trying to help the people of Israel. He's fighting those who want to stop uh, uh, outside, who want him to stop building the wall. And then within his own people, they are enslaving each other. What makes a man like this keep on dreaming? Point number two. Who are you and what do you want? We're going to start with what do you want. There was a story, I can't remember where this, this comes from. I, I, I listened to it on a podcast somewhere. And it was a story of a rich man and he was traveling by night. And he was walking up to a gate in an old city. This is in ancient times. And as he approached the city, there was a man on the wall. And the man on the wall was guarding the city. And this man was a soldier. And he told the, guy, the rich man, stop. Who are you? And what do you want? And the rich man paused for a second. And he said, I don't know but I will hire you and pay you a healthy wage if you will ask me that question every single morning. Why? Because he knew if he's reminded of who he was and what he wanted in life, he could accomplish whatever it was that God had on his heart. My question is, who are you? And what do you want? Let's start with what do you want? Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came to Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So he's asking about his fellow Jews who were left back there, those who were poor in the land after the wall has broken down. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, 
I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. He's given us bad news. He's mourning about the people back in Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. He's going to go to the king and ask his king for help. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Very simple. The king asked him, What did he want? And he gave him the answer right there. Send me back so I can rebuild the city. He had a vision. He had no resources. He had no plan. He had no support. But he had a vision. It seems simple. What do you want? But some of us in life, we have a hard time answering that question. What do we want? Listen, when my wife Dawn was pregnant with Amber, who's sitting right there, We were driving around, looking for something to eat. Now, if you've ever had to drive a pregnant woman around who was hungry, you know that this this is a situation that can be fraught with disaster. Have you ever been hungry and not known what you want to eat? But you know everything you don't want to eat. So the conversation in the car was something like this. Oh, you want Spanish food? We had that yesterday. Chinese food? No, it's too oily. Sushi? Too much mercury. Indian? No, not in the mood. You want to eat at home? No, I'm too tired. (laughs) Baby, what do you want to eat? I'll eat whatever you want to eat. (laughs) Okay, let's have Jamaican. Definitely not Jamaican. It drives us insane. You have a vision of being satisfied, but you can't make a decision. You know this scenario has been played out in our lives in many different ways. We want something, but we can't articulate what it is. My question to you is, what do you want? Now, I think as disciples, sometimes we get asked a question like that, and we try to get all spiritual. I want world peace. (laughs) Awesome. But what in your spirit, in your heart, do you really want that you are passionate about? It doesn't necessarily have to have some spiritual something attached to it. What do you want in your spirits? See, Nehemiah was not afraid to answer that question. And we're going to see later that's because he also was very real earlier on in his life about what he wanted. See, a strong vision can help you reach your goal despite opposition. Knowing what you want, specific, clear vision. Proverbs 29 verse 18. The Bible says where there is a lack of vision, the people perish. And right here, the people were perishing because there was no vision. All they could see was their past failure. Vision is an act or the power of, of anticipating what will come. He was moved to tears, but him being moved to tears did not make him sit in his depression, did not make him sit in his sadness, did not paralyze him. He was in tears, but he was moved to actions. Do your tears stop you from moving forward? The word Nehemiah means comfort of the Lord. 
your vision will bring comfort to others. See, what happens, instead of having a vision, we have a wish. Right? We wish. And a wish is more in fantasy land. We wish we could be in shape, but eat what we want. We're just wishing. I wish I could make that money, but I don't want to go to work. Martin Luther King didn't come up and say, I have a wish. That would have just lost its power. He had a dream. He had visualized it. He had a vision. We've got to go from just wishing to dreaming and having vision. His speech painted a vision of what the world could look like even before it was even possible that it could happen. See, our dreams are an idea. And we're going to look at Martin Luther King at the end. Our dreams help us paint a vision of what it looks like. And that vision leads to action. Jesus said, you, us, disciples, will do greater things than he did. And then he painted the vision. He said, in the future, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. In a blink of an eye, we will all be changed. We will caught up to be with God in the clouds. He painted a clear vision. The dream to a vision to the action, which means we are here right now. He knew what he wanted. What do you want? Write it down right now. Point number two. Who are you and who will you be? See, for me, when I was first a dancer, um, that's what I was in my early career, I wanted to change the world with dance. But now, you know, I have a back injury. I, I can't dance as well as I used to. You know, but I also had this kind of kooky vision that when I got to heaven, that I would dance with Jesus, that I would have a duet with Jesus. Now, I don't know what kind of dance they do up in heaven, but me and Jesus were going to get down. But sometimes we want to change the world and we have a huge vision for others, for the church. But how about we start with a vision for ourselves, for our own individual lives? Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11. See, when we have a personal vision, God's plan will unfold naturally. Again, another short sentence. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11. It says, I, Nehemiah, was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Very simple statement. But what did that take? See, being cupbearer to the king was a position of influence. Now, bear in mind, Nehemiah was a Jew in exile in Babylon, right? He was living there. He grew up. Many of his people were mistreated and treated as second-class citizens. His people's legacy had been destroyed, and he could have been someone who just accepted his place in life. What did it take to become cupbearer to the king? Now, this was an official position. You would serve wine at the king's table, and many people wanted that position. And you were to protect the king from any poisonous attempts. So you would be the person who has to drink the wine before the king drank it. How's that for a job description? But it meant you are highly trusted. You were protecting the king from poisonous attempts. Now think about this. If anyone was to be mistrusted, 
wouldn't it be a Jew whose people had been decimated, whose people were in slavery? Wouldn't that be the guy that you mistrust? Why have him close? And then, not only that was he cupbearer, he was brought into the king's inner circle. He became a governor. The king appointed him governor. So this was a wealthy man. What is my point here? Nehemiah didn't get here by accident. He worked hard. He took responsibility. He took ownership. This was a man who had vision for himself. And this vision for himself got him to be in the king's inner circle. And then God was able to use him. Nehemiah chapter 2. He was a Jew. He was respected. A man of influence. So when the need arose for God to find someone whom he could work through to save his people, Nehemiah could step in. Now, let's move on. Nehemiah had already asked the king, and this is what happens afterwards. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7. I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. Remember earlier, they were saying, don't let them build or we will lose the trans-Euphrates. So that they will provide me self-conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and also for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. Think about that. And, be- and because uh, the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat and the Horonite and, and Tobiah the Ammonite um, official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So after years of kings trying to stop the wall being built, stop the Israelites rebuilding, Nehemiah goes and just asks for it. And the king sends him um, uh, people with him uh, to rebuild, sends him the uh, materials that he needs to be rebuilt, and an army, army of people to walk through the trans-Euphrates back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And in addition to that, he gave him what he needed to build his own apartment. Think about that. 140 years, no one could do it. And then all he does is asks for it. And the king gives him all of this stuff. Why? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. A man's gifts makes room for him and brings him before great men. Nehemiah's gifts and vision for himself took him from an exile, possibly a slave, to one of the king's right-hand men. He was able to get safe passage and supplies and his own apartment. Remember, the vision God put on his heart to rebuild was not the reason he became the cupbearer. That vision came later. But because he had a vision for himself, when the time came for God to move his heart to be the comforter of God's people, he was trained. And he had everything he needed for God to use him. Imagine if he had no vision for himself. Imagine if he identified, I'm just an exiled Jew, let me just get on with it and serve my place in life. Imagine if that was his spirit. What would have happened? Do you believe 
that your gifts can accomplish this. We take for granted the things that come easy to us. People are most effective in their life when they focus on their strengths and they do what they're good at. We waste time looking at our weaknesses. Yes, we have to build them up, but I've preached this here before. Some of us are never going to be the detail-oriented people. We're just not. There are detail-oriented people. You dot your I's, you cross your T's. I don't understand you. I've been married to one for 17 years. She's still trying to understand me. But your talents, if we waste time just looking at what we are not, our walls will not get rebuilt. The walls in our marriage will not get rebuilt in our church, in our families. But if we start to look at who God made us, remember, his name was Nehemiah, the comforter of God's people. That's who he was. And he grew to fill that role and that name that God had given him. Who you are is who God designed you to be. Let's get rid of the sin and anything that hinders, but let's maximize the gifts that God has given us. Lack of vision for yourself can stop God from using you in his grand plan. Think about that. Personal lack of vision can stop God from using you in his his grand plan. He will put you in position to influence others. I think about the, the Richards who are um, in, um, in our ministry up in Westchester. They're wealthy. They've worked very hard. We heard their story. People look at them right now and they're like, oh, well, they got it like that. But they don't know the story beforehand and the struggle and the debt that they had to go through and the fact that they never really had any money until they were 43 years old and the fact that they were still paying off their office desk as they were doctors. But now... They give money to help an orphanage in India where kids are saved and rescued and fed and brought back to rehabilitation and families are found for them. But they had that long journey. I've got to brag on my wife for a little bit. About eight years ago, my wife had no clue what she wanted to do. She was struggling in her career, what she wanted. Uh, the kids were, being, uh, were raised and she was like, what do I want to do? And so I'd ask her, what do you want to do? She said, I just know I want to help people. And I know I'm supposed to have a spiritual response. But I'm like, babe, is there any money in that? (laughs) We Christians, we help people all the time. We don't help people in the church. We spend years helping people in the church. It's time to help ourselves. After all, doesn't God say, doesn't the Bible say, he who helps, God helps those who help themselves? Messing up the scriptures, if anyone's visiting the Bible, does not say that. <laughs> See, looking at me like I'm crazy. But thank God for spiritual people. We, I remember we sat in the McCullough's uh, living room, and Monique gave her, gave her a suggestion about some course that she could take. And so off she went down that co- on, on that course to take that. And then she, uh, she struggled, and with kids and, and working, she got her master's degree. Then after that, she went to work, and they were like, no, a master's degree is not enough. And she's thinking, haven't I done enough? No, you've got to get certified. Now, the certification she had to take, they say, is harder than taking the bar. <laughs> she's uh, heresy like, it is. <laughs> See, it's called a BCBA. 
She's a board-certified behavior analyst. Now, it took her four attempts to take that test. With kids, the expense of taking the courses again. I remember um, I came home one day and my kids were telling me, you know, mom, was, um, mom got this letter and all we started hearing was screaming. And then we ran into the bedroom and she was screaming, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And she was on her knees and she was crying and we thought she was having a mental breakdown. But that's the time she got the letter that said she had finally passed the exam. And she's like, this is it. I'm going into my career. And then the government regulations changed and said, "Uh uh-uh. Not yet, sweetie. You got one more certification you got to take. She's like, God, please. Have I not served you enough? So she has to take another certification. Took a little while, she got that certification. Now, she is one of very few people who hold this specific certification in New York City. She got this job on her job. Other people were getting promoted past her. Has anyone ever had that? And she's looking at these people. Now, she was more qualified than the people who were, getting, she was, who were getting passed over her. And she was sitting there watching these people. Now, this is where I've got to commend her. Because sometimes as disciples, we're like, oh, I'll just wait. I'll just, you know, God doesn't want me to have it yet. So she was discouraged for a while. She's like, hold on a second. I've had more experience. I'm more educated. I have the right certifications. And they are promoting these people ahead of me. Plus, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. So she requested a meeting. And she's like, she was respectful. She's like, look, these other people you promoted, and that's great. But these are the reasons why I need to be promoted. And she listed them professionally, dropped the mic. I said, okay, okay, okay. We'll have a meeting and see what we can do. And then they promoted her to supervisor. So she supervises other therapists. And now, when there are difficult parents who come in, who do, who, who do they send in? Don't they like, how do you do that? How should this, this parent or this, this client was so upset and you turned them around? How does that happen? Have you heard of the Bible? Have you been in D group? Do you know Jesus? See, the training you have compares nothing to what we've had right here. The training you get here, my goodness, let them know. Anyway, see, having that kind of vision for yourself, because what we can say is, you know what, that, that, that's just, we've got to be humble. Yes, we've got to be humble. But sometimes being humble means accepting how God has made you. You look through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. What does Paul say? Paul, I'm ambassador by the will of God. Paul, administrator of the gospel by the will of God. For everything by the will of God. That's who I am. Now imagine that. We would say, bro, calm it down. You're a little bit prideful. I don't want to hear your credentials all the time. But I think it's a show of humility when you accept 
the gifts that God has given you, and what God wants you to do with them. When Jesus said, because Abraham was, I am, they thought he was arrogant. But in humility, he had accepted who God wanted him to be. He didn't say, because Abraham was, I am, is that okay with you? He just made the statement. Yes, we've got to watch out for selfish ambition. But you've got to have a vision for yourself. You've got to believe in who God has made you. Because that will open doors. Because of what Dawn done, we, we have been able to help out with a special needs clinic up, in, up uh, at Hope. So we were able to go there. And there were families who were facing some real discouragement. And we were able to go there and, and help them and encourage them and also do a movement workshop with the kids with special needs and Dawn wants to do more for the church. Your gifts will benefit you, but it will also benefit the church and bring comfort to others. Don't let go of your vision. The other thing is we don't get into these positions so we can't have influence. Have you ever been watching either the news or something on TV and someone says something in the name of Christianity and you just want to shake your head? And it's filled with all the wrong things. It's filled with hate. It's filled with judgment. It's filled with putting people down. It's filled with arrogance. The whole posture. And people are looking at this as this is Christianity. See, if we're not in those positions to speak for ourselves, someone will speak for us. They will speak for us. And then when you meet somebody and you talk about church, they're looking at you through the lens of every negative thing they've heard in the media, in the news, and every other place in their life. We need to be in these positions of influence so that we can spread the love of Jesus Christ, the aroma of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ. This is why we need to go for our dreams. Some of us have been sitting on our dreams that God puts in our heart. And look, it doesn't have to be some grand plan. Go back to school. Be on the PTA. Get a career. Go back and take that exam that you've been fearful of taking. Go try and figure out what's going on in your family and bring some healing there. Start with a small vision and see what God will do with it. You know, listen, vision brings... brings, Sometimes vision is all you've got. I remember when I was here in Harlem, our D group consisted of an ex-Nation of Islam drug dealer, a former mafia henchman. So if you didn't pay the bills, this is the guy who would show up. There was another drug dealer in our, in our uh, D group who was supplying uh, the East Coast. He would tell stories about that. And then there was me and Trinidad Lopez, who Trinidad spoke Spanish, and back then my English accent was even thicker. We didn't know what each other was talking about. It's just like, Jesus, Bible, Jesus, Bible? Okay, let's go. That was it. That's all we had. Now, all of those guys were reformed and they repented, right? But all we had was vision. And at that time, we took that, that D group, at that time, um, went from where we were as a church, that one of those years, we were the fastest growing church in New York. We hit our contribution. We blew out our missions contribution that year with this group of people. But sometimes you've got to get your own dream. Don't look at somebody else's dream. We went to, a, there was one time we went to this leaders meeting. 
And Dawn and I were trying to figure out how can we help Harlem, uh, you know, how are we going to, what should we do? And so I said uh, to this leader who had led churches all over the country, uh, all over the world, I said, what did you do when you first started? Let me know. And he went on and he talked about all these exploits and these heroic things that they did and with all these incredible great church leaders. And I left, I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And Dawn and I were inspired. And then we got into the car with our discipling partner at the time. And he said, he said, what do you think about what they said? And we were like, this is what we think. And he said, you know what? Forget everything they said. And so we were like, whoa, this is, you know, what are you saying here? He goes, they had church leaders who were single, they had fresh out of college, they had gone to some of the most prestigious schools, and they sent them on the mission field. You have your D group. And he knew who was in my D group. So they have these guys, and you have your guys. He goes, forget what they said. You get your vision with your guys, and you make it happen with those people. We did that, and you guys, the church, blew it out. You can't try to fit somebody else's vision. You think about David when they were trying to give him, you know, somebody else's armor. These things didn't fit him. What worked for him was a stone and a sling. Sometimes that's all we have. Use what you have. Don't be looking at other people and think, they have it all. They have all the education. They have all the money. They have all the resources. doesn't matter. God has given you what you need right now. Look around. This is it. This right here is the vision that God has for Harlem. This, in these seats at this time, is what God is going to change Harlem with. This is what God has given you. We need big vision, people. Israel was able to work and do what they did uh, despite disunity, despite obstacles, despite distraction, because their vision was big enough. In closing, what still makes you passionate? What makes you angry? What injustice makes you angry? What makes you cry? What gets you indignant? What makes you work despite being tired? What makes you want to live life to the full? Because that is the thing that is going to keep you going. We talk about Martin Luther King. I want to play this uh, video, if we can set it up. He gave his I Have a Dream speech, and he fought. He was jailed 29 times in his lifetime. He went through all of this, and right before this speech we're going to look at is a speech that he gave when he knew that he could possibly die. This was the speech he gave the day before he was assassinated. It was in Memphis to encourage the church to keep the vision. Let's go. Yes. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. 
And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine last speech the day before he was assassinated. There will come a time, Harlem, when we are no longer here. What will our legacy be? What will those who come after us be left with? We've got to build this vision. Build a vision in your heart. Build a vision for Harlem. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Let's go back to the beginning, the end of all of this where it started, the walls being broken down, the disunity, the obstacles, one man's vision that put him in a place where he could affect the nation of Israel. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. I want to give you a 52-day challenge. At the beginning of every week, I want you to ask yourself a question. Week one, who are you? Write this down. At the end of beginning week one, who are you? Find out what you're passionate about. Reconnect with your dreams and your goals. Week number two, I want you to ask yourselves, what do you want? Meditate on it. Pray on it. What do you really want? Week number three, I want you to dream and visualize. See it clearly as Jesus painted a picture as Nehemiah saw it clearly. Then I want you to look at your resources and ask for what you need in the same way that Nehemiah asked for what he needed and he prayed before going to the king. Ask God for what you need. Week number five, make plans and take action. Then week number six, I want you to look at your opposition and challenges because there will be opposition and challenges. And week number seven, readjust and proceed. You got three extra days in there to do what you want. But Harlem, you guys have given us a vision for our lives. We are here as a family, as a disciple because of your love. We've had our reunion. We've see how, seen how far we can come. Let's decide to embrace the vision for ourselves and the vision for this great church. Amen.